Uh, this morning we continue our series uh, titled Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? So this is a series we've been doing in the lead up uh, to Easter and it's a series where we've asked this question of who he is because whether we agree or disagree about our answers to this question this is the most important question of our lives. Who is Jesus? In one sense, we can ask this question with a very simple response. But in another sense, there are a number of ways that we can respond to this question. Who he is? And this is what we're doing through this series. We're responding to this question in a number of, of different ways. Because there is so much to this question of who he is. Um, so far, we have answered who is Jesus by first recognising that Jesus is the God-man. He is a God-man. He is fully god and he is fully man. And because he is fully God and fully man, he is also, as TJ looked at last week, our burden bearer. He is the only one who can take our burdens, our suffering, our sin, our pain, our difficulty. Because he is the only person in human history who has ever lived and yet did not sin. Jesus is our perfect rescuer. And I loved how TJ pointed us towards the fact that there was this deep connection between the two of us. Our God-man is our burden-bearer. Our burden-bearer is our God-man. His name is Jesus. So today we answer this question of who is Jesus by thinking about the fact that he is our foretold Messiah. He is our foretold Messiah. The person, the life, the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus was foretold, predicted, prophesied. And this is something we get a glimpse of within our passage today. The passage we're going to look at tells a story of something that Jesus did in his life. And what's amazing is this was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Our passage today is actually representative of a bigger picture within our Bibles. What we find in Scripture is that the Old Testament points forward and says, this is who the Messiah will be. And the New Testament points to the time it was written and says, this is who the Messiah is. So let's have a look at this passage and let's all be open to, to all that God would have to say to us through his word. What is God's bigger message for every single one of us today as we take time to really unpack what it is that God's word has to say? We're going to read from Matthew's gospel. So Matthew chapter 21 and in verses 1 through to 11. Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives... Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is a prophet, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word today. So back in the late 90s, early noughties, or 2000s, whatever you might call it, there were a number of friends and family I knew who were baptised. And custom back then, as is custom now, 
people would respond to this celebration of baptism by handing over a card on the day of your baptism card. And probably the most popular verse that people would put in the card was Jeremiah 29 and verse 11. Back then it was normally from the NIV or the NLT. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And back in the day, any time I read that verse, it filled me with a deep sense of assurance and comfort. I had so many questions about what lay ahead as a young Christian. And so for me, it was good to know that God had plans. Plans to prosper and not to harm. Plans to give a hope and a future. As I look ahead to all that God might do within my life. So this was for me the Bible verse of the late 90s and early 2000s. I heard it all the time. Christians would always quote Jeremiah 29.11. And I took great encouragement from it. And not in a shallow way, but I believe in a very deep and profound way. And it was only when I went to Bible college that there was an exact opposite reaction to this verse. Uh, Students, and particularly Bible college students, which is a whole new breed of people, uh, took this verse to task. So much so that I genuinely started to wonder if they believed it was in the word of God. And the pushback was this. We're not living in exile. We're not living in Babylon. We're not living thousands of years ago in the Middle East, as God's people were during the time of Jeremiah. Therefore, this word is not for us today. This word is for them at that time. There is no direct or practical benefit to us today from Jeremiah 29.11. And a couple of issues I had with this response, and I had these issues recognising that this was not a very popular attitude in Bible college, and probably still is today. I was definitely in the the minority. First off, how do we decide which verses of the Old Testament aren't for us and are for us? Because those very people who are so against this verse were in fact so for the promises found in the Old Testament, like Proverbs, like the Psalms, like Isaiah. And secondly, all scripture is God-breathed. The whole Bible is useful and profitable for teaching. And Paul writes, speaking of the entirety of the word of God in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. All the promises of God are yes or yes in Christ. So that means, according to Paul, There is something for us within this verse, Jeremiah 29.11. And within the wider chapter of Jeremiah, within the entire book of Jeremiah, the pushback is most likely rooted in a genuine concern that we turn this into a prosperity gospel verse. If we trust in Jesus, we're going to receive health and wealth and success. All we need to do is take this verse to the bank and bingo, we get all that we ever wanted. But that would be reading this verse in a very shallow way. And I would hope that everybody who carefully studied this verse, and others like it, would very much reject that kind of interpretation. When we look at this verse within its proper historical context and within the bigger context of the Bible story, we actually discover a lot. We learn a lot about God's plan for his people in the days of exile, absolutely. But we also learn a lot about what he planned for us in Christ. As we think about eternity... Through the lens of eternity, we can say in Christ, God does have plans for us, to prosper us, not to harm us. God does have a plan to give us a hope and a future in light of eternity. And whether we experience something something of that here on earth is entirely up to God. All we can say with certainty is that in Christ, with eternity in mind, 
This verse is for us today. We can apply this verse to our lives. To reject this verse is to reject something else as well. It's to reject this bigger reality that God has this incredible, amazing, redemptive plan for this world and for our lives. And if we diminish the word of God in this one area, like Jeremiah 29.11, we will diminish it in other areas too, including our passage today. So what becomes clear as we open up the window of Matthew 21 and verses 1 to 11, our passage today, is that God really does have an incredible, amazing, redemptive plan for this world and for our lives through the person of Jesus. So we can therefore look at Matthew 21 and verses 1 to 11, and as we see what takes place, we can say, wow, this is amazing. God really does have a plan for us. He has a plan to prosper us and not to harm us. He has a plan to give us a hope and a future. As we look at Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. So God has a plan. God is in control. Do you believe us today? God has a plan. God is in control. Do you believe us today? There's two people nodding right now in this room. So I'm guessing everybody else is TJ's amen. Amen, which is great. Uh, So when we ask this question, who is Jesus? And when we say, He is a foretold Messiah. What are we saying? Well, we are saying that this Messiah, this Jesus, was predicted. He was prophesied hundreds of years before he ever came to earth. And that tells us something. That tells us that God has a plan and that God is in control. And if God has a plan, then surely that does something to us. Surely that changes us when we understand this. We have to surrender to this bigger truth and be changed by this bigger truth that he really is working all things for the good for those who love him and for those who are called according to his purpose. You know, I've got a genuine fear about today and about this passage because when we understand that God has a plan for all things, including our lives, it can pass us by. It can completely pass us by. It can be in our line of sight for a moment and then be gone in the next. And that's because we can be very easily informed by the Bible, but not necessarily necessarily transformed by Scripture. We can very easily become air show Christians. Don't know if you've ever been to an air show, but basically to sum it up, people stand on a bit of grass and they watch planes fly past them and then they go home. That's basically the essence of an air show. Uh, and we can so often do this when it comes to the Word of God. You can listen to a sermon, you can read your Bible. And you can be changed not one iota. It's so easy to let the word of God fly you by or fly by you. And you can go back home and you can continue to be who you have always been within your life. For I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Will we let this verse fly by us? Will we dismiss it as no longer relevant to us today? Will we choose to read this verse superficially and not biblically in light of eternity. We know that all things work for the good, for those who love him, and who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 Again, will we let it fly by us? Is it just going to go past us in our lives? Will we see it? Will we hear it? Will we choose to let these words take root within our hearts? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Again, do these words fly by us? 
Do we go home unaffected by what we have just heard? Are we challenged and changed by the word of God as we think about this disciple-making call upon our lives? And finally, Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11. What are you going to do about this passage today? Is it going to fly by you? Or will you, as Paul says in Colossians 3, let the word of God dwell in you richly so that you become conformed to his likeness, transformed by his goodness as you study this passage today? So my invitation to you today is to do the latter because God has a plan. God has a plan. Learn and study and grow in the word of God because when we learn and study and grow in the word, we learn and study and grow in who he is and we learn and study and grow in his plan for our lives. As we study God's word, we see his plan for our lives. And I hope we see this as we look at our passage today. And one of the first things that we see from Matthew 21 is that this God who has a plan is a God of the details. Have a look again at verses 1 to 3 of our passage. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent, then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. So when we choose not to let these seemingly matter-of-fact words pass us by, but instead we choose to look at them more intently, something happens. We see something in verses 1 to 3. Jesus speaks particular instructions to two of his disciples to collect a donkey tied with a coat. He tells them what to do, he tells them what to say, and he tells them where to go. What do we see Make no mistake about it, these verses point to the fact that we really do worship a God of the details. A God of the details. And the more and more we see this, the more and more we will see that God has a plan. Not only that, but from this passage, we don't just see that this is a God of the detail, we also see that this is a God over all history. He is working out the most significant moments of human history to fulfill this divine plan and purpose. He is over all of it, and he is working through all of it. We see this through the disciples collecting this donkey and colt. It was more than them picking up a couple of animals. It was actually the, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What was written hundreds of years before Jesus ever walked the earth came to pass through Jesus himself. It causes Matthew to write verses 4 to 5 of our passage. This took place. So that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So when we say today that God has a plan, we're saying at the intricate detail level, but we're also saying it as it relates to this bigger picture of all of human history and every single moment of human history. He really is working out his purpose for his glory both at the bigger and grander level, and also at the more detailed and intricate level. And as we look at verses 4 to 5, we discover that what Matthew does here is actually blend together three different prophetic passages from the Old Testament into one. And in each of these prophetic words, we discover that the Old Testament tells us something different about the Messiah. Each of these three points towards something of, of Jesus' character and his love and his grace towards us. And our knowledge of who Jesus is is strengthened 
as we see the connection between these prophetic words in the Old Testament and what it is that Matthew writes here within our passage. We find these words of Matthew 21 are something similar to these words rooted first of all in Genesis chapter 49 and in verses 10 to 11. Matthew in some way is quoting this. Jacob prophesies these words to his family. The scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between his feet until until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. He, He ties his donkey to a vine and the coat of his donkey to the choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. So Jacob here wants people to see that what God will one day do in the future will not just be for the Jewish people, the Israelites, it will be for the entire world. Jacob says here, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah and he would be a blessing and it would be a blessing that would lead to the obedience of all the peoples. Another way of putting that is the Messiah would be a blessing for all the nations. And we see this more deeply as we actually look forward in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, where John speaks of the Lion of Judah, the Lion of Judah, who we know to be Jesus, who would one day come to redeem his people from every tribe and from every, every tongue. So we can't escape the fact that God has a plan here. And what we see from Genesis, as it connects to our passage in Matthew, is that this is a plan for the whole world and all of history. But it's not just Genesis. We also understand something of what Matthew writes in verses 4 to 5 of our passage. When we look at Isaiah 62 and verse 11, Isaiah the prophet declares these words. Look to the Lord. Look, the Lord has proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, look, your salvation is coming. His wages are with him and his reward accompanies him. Similar to our Genesis passage. There's an echo of Isaiah in the words of Matthew. There's an echo of Isaiah in the words of Matthew. And what we read in Isaiah is that this Messiah King who would one day come would be the perfect picture of salvation. Isaiah and Matthew together want us to see that Jesus is salvation himself. And we know this to be true. Beyond our passage in Matthew 21 and elsewhere in the Gospels and the New Testament, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has given us his Holy Spirit. We today can experience salvation within our lives. We know with confidence, if we have lived a life in Christ, that Jesus really is our salvation. So I want us to see today that as you look at Matthew 21, through the lens of Genesis and through the lens of Isaiah, it becomes way more profound than if we were just to read Matthew 21 by itself. There's one more passage which helps us to see God's bigger plan as it's connected to verses 4 to 5 and to this particular point within Jesus' life and history. Let's take a moment to read the prophetic words of Zechariah. And in particular, Zechariah 9, verse 9, we read these words. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. For me, it's just so obvious that Zechariah here is talking about what took place on Palm Sunday. In Zechariah, we read that this Messiah is a king. And this king would ride righteously, victoriously, and with humility on a donkey. And we know from elsewhere in the Old Testament that a king riding into a city on a donkey was representative of a king offering reconciliation and offering peace. We see it in Judges 5.10 and 1 Kings 1.33 in particular within the Old Testament. So we can take from these prophetic words in the Old Testament that this Messiah was God's plan 
The Messiah was God's plan. And this means that it was God's plan to bless all people and all nations and all history, what we see in Genesis. It means it was God's plan to send salvation himself to us. He wants to save us and rescue us, what we see in Isaiah. And as we read in Zechariah, this means it was God's plan for this Messiah to be a king, a righteous king, a victorious king, a humble king. So when we understand Jesus in this way, we can trust him because we see who he is. We see his heart. We see what he desires for us and for this world. We can see that he is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. He is a God of grace. He does not want us to be left alone within our sin. He desires to rescue us and bring us back into a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. This is God's plan for all to see as we study this passage and as we see how this passage is connected to prophecy within the Old Testament. And what's amazing is that God's plan is not done in isolation from his people. He wants his children to play their part. When we think big picture and we think of the great command and the great commission that he has given to his people, the church, we must understand that God has a role for us to play in all this. He has plans and purposes for us so that his bigger plan and purpose may be be fulfilled in the world and in history. And again, we catch a glimpse of this in Matthew 21. As we have looked at, Jesus riding in on a donkey as he did represented something very important. And as Jesus did this, he was in flashing capital neon letters saying, I am the Messiah. Everyone would have understood this at that particular point in history. And Jesus asked two of his disciples to play their part in this in order to make this moment a reality. In verses 6 to 7 of our passage, after he had given them instructions to, to collect these animals, we read these words, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. Now this might seem like a really small thing to you, but I just want us to see that this moment represents something so much bigger. This moment speaks in some way to the role that we have to play. Without question, we get a glimpse of this amazing truth here. God wants to include you and I in his bigger plan and purpose for the world. God wants to include you and I as part of his bigger plan and purpose for the world. And it's not that he needs us to fulfill his plan. No, he wants to include us. And he includes us because he loves us and he desires to be glorified through us. And just as a side note, when we read in the final part of verse 7, do not misunderstand the word them here. He was not riding on both animals at the same time. Them refers to the clothes. He rode the colt as the clothes were on it and as the colt was being led by the donkey. It's just a wee side note uh, for us. But God reveals something of his plan here. He is revealing that he is a foretold Messiah. He wants the disciples to play their role in this unveiling and what happens next? What happens next? The crowd responds. The crowd responds. Let's have a look at what the crowd do in verses 8 to 9 within our passage. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So what we discover here are three different responses from the crowd. And each of these responses means something. So firstly, as Jesus enters into the city, they spread their clothes 
on the road. What are they doing here? They are in some way submitting to Jesus as their king. This is a sign of recognised authority. This is a visible outward action that represents something greater and more important for them. They believe that Jesus is the one who is going to lead them. Secondly, they cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. This is why we call it Palm Sunday. What were the palm branches all about? Well, palm branches were a symbol of Jewish nationalism and victory. If you were to study coinage in the days of Jesus, you would find palm branches on them. These coins represented the importance of nationalism for Jewish people. And finally, they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna simply means all safe. And going back to this connection between the Old Testament and our passage in Matthew 21, we find this phrase expressed in Psalm 118 and verses 25 to 29. The psalmist writes these powerful words, Lord, save us. Lord, Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God and has given his light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. You are my God, I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Now what's really, really interesting about this exact Old Testament passage, this particular psalm, was sung during Passover season, during the time of Jesus. And Jesus was entering Jerusalem on a colt during the Passover season. Why is this important? Well, it's important because Matthew wants us to see that the Passover was more than just looking back and celebrating how God's people were rescued from slavery in Egypt. The Passover was also looking forward and rejoicing in what God would one day do through his Messiah. So Matthew wants us to see that the promise of the Passover was completed through the person of Jesus, the God-man. And the crowd know what they are doing here. They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're making an unmistakably messianic declaration about Jesus. They see Jesus as this Davidic Messiah. They are asking him to save him from their oppression. They believe that he has been sent by God to rescue them. And all of this makes sense when you think about what the crowd had already seen before this messianic moment. Many describe a passage today as a triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. That might be your heading in your Bible. But this is a moment where everything almost is like a light goes on. Everything hits home for the crowd. So just think about it for a moment. They had already heard Jesus' teaching. Jesus' words and insights and parables were unlike anybody else's. And they had already witnessed and observed his miracles. He was making the impossible possible in countless ways. He was changing people's lives. He was transforming their lives in a very clear and evident way. To give you one example, Lazarus had just been risen from the dead. And we can be pretty certain that Lazarus was in this crowd. This resurrected man was there shouting Hosanna. It's quite incredible. Jesus had been authenticating his messiahship through what he said and through what he did in the entirety of his earthly ministry, leading up to this particular moment. And so when he presents himself in Matthew 21, in a very visible messianic way, by entering into Jerusalem on a colt, the people can't help but respond by putting clothes on the road, by spreading branches on the road, by declaring Hosanna, Jesus save us. 
When they see Jesus, they see the Messiah. It's unmistakable. It's really important that we take hold of the reaction of the crowd in this passage. And also as we take hold of the many other reactions to Jesus and to God throughout Scripture. All of it points towards something really important for each one of us today. That being that God's plan, God's plan always demands a response. His plan always demands a response from us. And what's true is we will either respond positively to his plan, we will be indifferent to his plan, we'll just shrug our shoulders and say whatever, or we will be completely closed to his plan within our lives. But we can't not respond though. It's impossible not to respond to God's plan. We will respond in some way to what he is doing. Will it be a positive response? Will it be a negative response? Or will it be a casual response? Matthew actually leaves it a bit of an open question as to whether or not the crowd actually got it. Whether or not the crowd actually understood who this Jesus really was. Whether or not they could see God's plan for themselves. You know, it's debatable as to whether or not the crowd understood Jesus to be the Messiah. And in believing that they did believe that he would provide political victory against their enemies. So did they understood Jesus to be, to be the Messiah in the sense that he would provide some form of political victory for the entire nation of Israel? Or did they see Jesus as the one who really did come to solve men and women's problem of sin within their lives? That being a rejection and rebellion against God. Was this response from the crowd political? Or was it spirit-filled? Was it one where they saw their sin and they wanted Jesus to rescue them from their sins? When we read in verses 10 to 11, we are left unsure, unsure as to whether or not they had fully grasped God's great plan for their lives and for the world. Matthew writes, starting in verse 10, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is a prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. It all comes down to what they understood as the prophet Jesus. Commentators have different understandings as to what was going on in the hearts and minds of the people who witnessed this particular moment in Jesus' life. They definitely grasped something of what was going on, but did they take hold of it fully? Had they really seen Jesus and were they really responding and worship to him? As we have thought about God's plan today and as we have thought about God's plan being one where he has revealed who he is, this foretold Messiah, the one who loves us, the one who died for us, the one who transforms us, it really does beg a question for each one of us today. How are you responding to him? How are you responding to him? Are you saying today, yes, God, I want to live in and through your plan and purpose for my life. Not my plan, but your plan. I want to surrender everything of who I am to you. Make no mistake about it. You will not find peace. You will not find satisfaction. You will not find freedom until you surrender your life into his life. So there's opportunity now for you to respond to this message. If you're watching this live... You can contact us uh, on the message feed or a prayer button and receive prayer right now. If you're watching this recorded, you can contact us directly by email, info at denisonbaptist.co.uk or on social media. If you're here right now and you would like prayer, then do speak to us after the service. And you may want to contact us today because you want to make a decision to surrender your life to him. 
You want to make Jesus Lord of your life. You want him to be the driving seat, to be in the driving seat for the very first time. So let me invite you to do that today. I would encourage you to make Jesus Lord of your life for the very first time. Or you may want to contact us because you're just finding the Christian life really difficult at the moment. You know, we all go through seasons in life where it seems impossible. We're overwhelmed by what we face. Things are not making any sense. Instead of clarity, we have confusion. If that's you today and you need prayer, then don't miss out on this opportunity. Respond to him today and seek prayer from brothers and sisters in Christ. What I want to do as we close, I'm just going to show you a short video. It's a testimony of somebody who decided to no longer pursue their own selfish plan. Instead, they surrendered their life into God's life and they followed God's plan, believing that God had the very best for them. What they found was that God was enough. God was more than able to deal with this man's baggage and all of the different challenges that he faced. And what he experienced was a joy and a satisfaction and a peace that he had never experienced before. So let me encourage you, as you watch this testimony, this story, his story can be your story today. As you see what what God did in the life of this man, this can be your story. He can change and transform your life so that you have joy you have peace, you have freedom. This foretold Messiah is a God-man who bears our burdens and who sets us free. So let's have a watch at this video.